Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. We are back at DLD AI Summit in Munich. Uh, later today, actually, I'm uh, organizing a final panel, the big picture outlook on AI, how it's going to change the world, not just in tech, but in politics, in geostrategy, and in economics. And one of uh, the people on my panel is Benedict Franca. He's the CEO of the Munich Security Conference. I grabbed him before the panel so we can warm up. Benedict, uh, are we on the verge of a Oppenheimer moment when it comes to uh, generative AI, the new craze for AI in Silicon Valley? I think we're right in the middle of an Oppenheimer moment where we have to decide whether to continue developing a technology with potentially disastrous impact or whether we are going to begin ostracizing the use of AI when it comes to weaponry, uh, if we are going to regulate it, if we're going to place guardrails around the Pandora's box, which is already wide open. And I think the parallels to Oppenheimer, not only the person, but also the movie, are pretty clear to see. The Oppenheimer movie, the Christopher Nolan movie, uh, presented Oppenheimer as a kind of Sancho Panza, I guess, someone blowing in the wind, uh, not really able to change history, the inevitable force of history shaping the world, whatever Oppenheimer's moral qualms. Do you really believe that this time around, almost a hundred years later, things can be different? I think what will not be possible is to find, to put Pandora back into the box. It's out. AI is here to stay. Generative AI is here to stay. We have to make the best out of it. And I think, again, the atomic bomb is actually a good parallel because obviously nuclear energy uh, has been harvested for, for the good of humanity, whereas we've been pretty successful at ostracizing the use of nuclear weapons around the world. So if we do that same thing when it comes to AI, namely focus on the positive, on the productive aspects of AI, uh, and ostracize the use of AI when it comes to weaponry, I think we'll have done our job. Benedict, you said that uh, uh, being quite successful in terms of controlling nuclear weaponry as my old uh, neighbor in Berkeley used to joke, uh, one nuclear bomb can ruin your day. Let's go back to the 1940s, to the time of Oppenheimer. If you were rewriting history, what could we have done on that front that we should have done that we can learn from today? I think, you know, to, to come to one difference between the 1940s and now is that governments were driving the development and now governments are lacking behind and it's the private sector that we have far less under control than obviously government-driven agencies. And I think that's the key difference. Um, what could we have done differently in the 1940s as a German, I must say, everything? Um, but the, I didn't mean it. <laughs> yeah, it's all good. But I mean, the, the point being, the, the reason why the US government took away the security clearance of uh, Oppenheimer after the Second World War was that he stated that he'd always been focusing on the possible, and once he'd invented it or, you know, realized it, uh, he would then think about the moral aspects, about the, the difficult 
questions. And I think we, we need to get better at asking the difficult question first before we develop everything to the end. But isn't technology inevitable? Uh, once you're on the road to it, that in the, the Christopher Nolan movie, uh, Einstein suggested that in his own humanistic kind of way. And once this, once the ball begins rolling, there's not a great deal one can do, especially in the 2020s, as you suggest, because the latest new technology is being developed by private companies. I think that you know that the picture that you're using with the ball rolling is a really good one. Because to change the direction of a rolling ball, you need just a little tip here and a little tip there. And I think it's the same with technology. We won't stop the ball, but with not that much effort, we may be able to change the direction here and there. And that's what I'm advocating for. It's always good to talk to Germans about football. Um, Benedict, what can we do then? How can we change the direction of the ball? The game started, the ball is rolling. But there's nothing inevitable about where that ball's going to go. What would you like to see happen on the geopolitical front when it comes to weaponry, when it comes to who controls these technologies, and of course, who regulates them? Perfect. I, I think there are two things that I'd love to see. I'd love to see a stronger focus within the European Union on tech regulation that actually works, that makes us stronger, that makes our democratic processes stronger and more resilient. I would like to see a chief security officer at the European Union level that has one task and one task only to look at tech regulation and other regulation and check whether it's actually good geopolitically and from a security standpoint. And then the second thing that I would love to see is an alignment between the tech policy and regulation uh, in the United States and in Europe. Together we are stronger, divided we are easy prey for the illiberal forces out there. If you look at the competitive studies project that Eric Schmidt has started, we are already behind on four of seven indicators of AI uh, when we look at China. And hence, we must not stimmy growth, we must not suppress innovation, but we need to make sure that our governments have a plan. Plan beats no plan. Are you concerned you bring out Europe and its regulatory potential? Are you concerned that Europe is becoming or has become the Silicon Valley of regulation. It's very good at saying no because its economy is increasingly marginal, peripheral, irrelevant. So uh, the only thing Europeans seem to be good at is regulating new innovation. You know, when I was prepared for this little interview, I was told that you would be uh, provocative, um, which is... That's not provocative. Yeah, no, that's fine. But I think the, the, don't underestimate the, the European economy. Don't underestimate the, the system that the European Union has put in place. I believe very strongly that we're overdoing it and that we need to trim back to relevance the regulation that we've put in place. But I also believe that in the long term, good and sensible regulation will make us a stronger actor. I think that the picture that you are um, conveying, you know, the Silicon Valley of regulation is true. But then let's look at the US, you know, is it better to always go the path of litigation rather than, you know, advanced regulation? I'm not so sure. What I would love to see, as I've said, is why don't we combine what the Americans do so well with what the European Union is forced into, namely regulation, and, and make sure that it actually works for tech companies. It's so silly that we've been put into a position where we compete much more with our friends, the US, than with our enemies, 
um, and, and foes and rivals like China and Russia. Um, we're so busy trying to suppress the tech dominance of the United States that we have lost the edge, I think. And here, um, events like this summit today can potentially help to reinvigorate this, this sort of spirit of innovation that was a German hallmark 50 years ago. What's in it, though, for the Americans? I mean, I understand what's in it for the Europeans, this new alliance you're suggesting of regulation and innovation, but why should the Americans want to do business with a Europe that's reactionary when it comes to technology? Why should the Europeans care about a European economy that's in decline, perhaps even in crisis? You know, still 550 million Europeans, um, uh, some of the richest countries in the world, some of the most attractive markets for US products. Surely you can bank on China, India and Nigeria. I do believe that the, the, the legal security that US businesses have in the European um, Union is unbeatable. I think the, the type of markets that we offer um, are unbeatable. And I believe it's very much... What do you mean unbeatable? Show me a more attractive market for US products than the European Union. I don't see it. Where is it? Is it Mexico? Is it Canada? Is it Where is it? I don't, I don't see it. Um, maybe I'm wrong, but the 550 million are here to stay. Whereas if you look at population decline in China, you know, projected to be down to 750 million in the next 40 years. Uh, markets that the US could look to are going to shrink and Europe will get out of its current crisis. You're absolutely right. European economy is not at its strong place at the moment, but it will, it will bounce back. I think we're taking a deep breath. We're maybe greening a little too hard here and there, slowing growth. There is de-industrialization going on, but we'll come back stronger, I'm convinced. Benedict, uh, there obviously is not a lot of love lost between the Biden and Trump administrations, but lots of independent analysts are beginning to see a great deal of continuity, particularly on the foreign policy front in terms of trade policy and tech policy towards China and perhaps even Europe. Are you concerned here in Europe, uh, particularly from your perch at the Munich Security uh, Conference, with, uh, uh, if not an American isolationism, certainly uh, a, a zero-sum attitude when it comes to technology and tech policy? You know, you, you're touching on a really interesting point, this idea of zero-sum thinking is something that we're going to look at very hard and that will be at the center of our anniversary conference next year in February. Zero sum when it comes to tech, zero sum when it comes to values, zero sum when it comes to a lot of other things. And yeah, I am, we are massively concerned. Um, on the other hand, you know, many of the points that Trump made did have a, did contain a grain of truth. I mean, he did point out that we weren't carrying enough of the burden of European defense ourselves. He pushed us in the right direction. He did have a point when it came to normalizing relationships with Israel, uh, within the Arab world. There were many things that he sort of, I think, did it in, in an overly provocative way. But you know, coming back to this picture of Oppenheimer, this idea of strategic or nuclear deterrence, there is a concept uh, in nuclear deterrence that is called strategic ambiguity. You try to keep the other side unsure of your readiness and willingness to retaliate. I think that's what made Trump mm. so, um, so effective. Uh, 
Europeans have learned their lesson and uh, since Trump left office um, we, we work really hard on shouldering more of the burden and to anticipate some of the other issues that he will have with us if he ever comes back to power. You don't need me to tell you, Benedict, that a few hundred miles east of uh, Munich there's still a war going on uh, in Ukraine, in many ways a war that some people at least see as a continuation of the Second World War, or certainly Second World War-like. How do you think AI may affect that? Uh, I know you were quite influenced by a piece recently in the New York Times, appropriately called Oppenheimer Moment by uh, Alex Cart, the uh, CEO of Palantir Technologies, a tech security company which was, I think, founded by Peter Thiel. Uh, can AI play a role in bringing peace to Ukraine? It's definitely already playing a role uh, in helping the Ukrainians defend the territory. Can it bring peace? I'm more skeptical. Um, I think the only thing that will bring peace is a situation where both sides of the equation are convinced that they have more to gain from negotiations than from continuing hostilities. And neither on the Ukrainian side nor on the Russian side do I see that um, realization. And so I think this war is here to stay for a while and AI, maybe for the last time, will play a very small role in its um, end. Is technology playing a role though in, in the war? We had some conversations in the past about the role of drones, but it, in some ways it does seem like a very 20th century kind of war. It's almost a 19th century kind of war, mm. um, you know, with trenches and, and people running at each other and firing at each other. But I think that the, the really interesting thing is that there is this saying that we always prepare for the last war. Mm. I think, at our own uh, fault, we prepared for the war after next. And uh, we were expecting, you know, bits and bytes to fly and not cruise missiles. Um, what we're seeing is a pretty standard 20th century war with some edge to it. An edge, particularly on the defensive side, where crowd intelligence, where drones, where instant access to information, where targeting platforms driven by AI and, you know, companies like Palantir help the massively uh, under starved Ukrainian military to hold and in some places even defeat the, the, the much stronger Russian military. Where are we, um, Benedict, in terms of the bigger picture, in broad geostrategic terms? Uh, you and I both know Ian Bremer and Mustafa Suleiman quite well. Um, Suleiman was on the show last week. An interesting piece in Foreign Affairs magazine, the AI power paradox, in which they talked about bringing tech companies to the table in terms of talking about AI, uh, rethinking or recognizing the, the nature of 21st century politics or economics where some of these private companies, the Googles, the Microsoft, the Apples, are more powerful than governments themselves. Are we at a point uh, where we need to rethink the fundamentals of international politics and security? You know, I, I like both um, Ian and, and Mustafa and I, I just doubt here that they are right. You know, to, to come up with a different moment. I think we're at the East India Company moment, at the very end when governments realized, particularly the British government realized that this East India Company was just getting too massively strong, too dominant, um, too important and decided to uh, to scale it down. Or with the Knights Templar that became too important and were, you know, cut back to 
to size or even um, uh, abolished or annihilated. I'm convinced that we need to get better at getting tech companies to the table, but they should never, ever have a role in the decision making. This is uh, for states and intergovernmental organizations to decide and not for tech companies to uh, to play around with. We are already seeing some of them wielding too much power. Look at, you know, Starlink's importance for the Ukrainian army. If I just imagine that there were shareholders who at some point would make the comment, you know, that this is just not worth the money and they stop it and uh, Ukrainians would lose soldiers because of it, that would just make me feel sick. And so I think companies have no role in the jobs that we pay governments to do. It's interesting that you compare our current moment with the East India Company and compare maybe the Googles and Apples with it. There's a much clearer difference though, much more sunlight if you like, much more space between these private companies and government. And the East India Company and its history was very much bound up with European or British colonialism. These companies don't need governments. In fact, they organize or reorganize themselves around the world, setting up offices in Ireland or Malta or Romania or wherever other tax regime benefits them. How can an individual government harness these companies? There's about to be a major antitrust um, suit in Washington DC over Google, but none of these governments seem, or their judicial systems seem to be able to clip the wings of these big tech companies. Yeah, and, and you know, I'm, I'm undecided uh, to how much you have to clip the wings. I think you shouldn't raise expectations for further involvement. We need to find a way for uh, an easier and more productive coexistence. And, you know, at the end of the day... Well, you don't want to clip their wings. You said that that's the model, that the British government clipped the wings of the East India. It, what I'm saying is that I think we are reaching a moment where there will be some reaction. Um, I also believe that it's not fair to say that Tech companies don't need the government. Governments provide protection. Governments provide stability. Governments provide the services that the employees need to get to work and all these things. Um, and we've come to a, a place where most of the benefits land on the side of the tech companies and not enough land on the side of the states and the international rules-based order. And to be perfectly honest, when you said you know what distinguishes the East India Company moment from the, the Google, Microsoft, Musk moment, um, was this idea of colonialism. Go to the Global South and see what they think about American tech companies. It's just another form of colonialism. We are now dominating their social media. We're now dominating their social lives um, and not just you know, their resources and, and forests. And so I think the similarities are, are, are pretty, uh, pretty obvious. Maybe it's not a perfect analogy and I'll work on it, but the point is, I, I think you will see a backlash. I, I think you will see wings being clipped. I just don't know how much they should be clipped by to make for a good and productive coexistence. It's interesting, though, that um, if we clip the wings of these companies, then you, you brought up China, then that only empowers Chinese-style East India companies. Uh, we did a show on Cobalt Ray on the way in which unofficial Chinese mining companies are essentially raping the Congo of cobalt, the essential uh, material in batteries. So by how do we balance all that up, Benedict? 
how can we make sure that uh, if we involve ourselves in uh, regulatory battles with these big tech companies, we won't ultimately simply be benefiting the Chinese. Yeah, and we certainly don't want to do that. Um, I think it comes back, you, you remember when I said we need to uh, improve European tech regulation to make sure that we're not, you know, doing something for the right reasons, but it turns out with the wrong consequences. Um, the, the same is true here. By the way, and we spoke about this earlier when, when, when we talked, I think you will find that AI is our strongest weapon against the closed societies that actors like Russia and China like. Um, ChatGPT and U.com and what they're all called. You can't tame them. You can't censor them. And uh, the more the Chinese and the Russians will have access to these tools, the more they will realize how oppressed and suppressed they are. And so my hope is that, that as we try to find a way to have companies and government help each other, then we will also see illiberal forces uh, being hit hard. Final question, Benedict. I know you've got to run. Uh, you talked about illiberal forces. You've also talked about the East India Company. Of course, the most famous fellow who worked at the East India Company was John Stuart Mill, the uh, most influential 19th century liberal as well, the author of On Liberalism, many other classic texts. Are you bullish on individual rights in this new international system, particularly in the age of AI? I think I am. Um, why shouldn't I be? The the most attractive bit of the international rules-based order, as it was designed at the end of the 1940s, is individual rights. And um, I think that is what will draw in people from suppressed um, areas of this world. What is particularly attractive, what is easy to communicate, what is just obvious. Um, and, and so I am very bullish.